Welcome to the Three Martini Lunch. Grab a stool next to Greg Corumbus of Radio America and Jim Garrity of National Review. Three Martinis coming up. Well, we've made it to the end of another week. Congratulations to all of us. Your stool is ready. Glad you're with us. And uh, we have good, bad, and crazy martinis for conservatives today. And... Jim, one of the things you've talked about a lot over the past year and change is how exactly did this coronavirus outbreak begin? There's a lot of different theories. The more conventional wisdom one that it was at a wet market in Wuhan and bats and pangolins and some sort of combination of that got into the people who live there and then on it went from there. Uh, But some evidence has certainly popped up, and you have documented this very well, that it could be an unintentional lab leak from Wuhan. And you have some support for that idea now, not that there weren't other people already uh, believing this, but former CDC director Dr. Robert Redfield believes that as well. In fact, he said this to Sanjay Gupta on CNN on Friday morning. I still think the most likely uh, etiology of this pathogen in Wuhan was from a laboratory. Um, you know, escaped. Uh, Other people don't believe that. That's fine. Science will eventually figure it out. It's not unusual for respiratory pathogens that are being worked on in a laboratory to infect the laboratory worker. So, Jim, as Redfield says there, he's allowed to have opinions now, and that's what it is, but I'm assuming it's an educated opinion. He thinks it uh, actually started as early as September of 2019. How does this change the debate and the discussion about how this all got started? You know, I think Redfield... Uh, it's interesting how his statement, which came out this morning, it's apparently in some upcoming CNN uh, documentary, um, how it's being characterized and how it's being reacted to. I think one of the first tweets was, you know, without evidence, Redfield says, or something like that. <laughs> um, you know, but notice it's not a full-throated, this definitely happened tone, right? He's saying that this is a possibility. He says this is a, a possibility that he's kind of leaning in the direction of. Um, he doesn't completely rule out the possibility of what they call a zoonotic origin, meaning it comes from some animal, jumps into a human outside of a laboratory environment and, and gets into there. And I think based on what we know, very little can be ruled out, very little can be ruled in, uh, or I guess I guess everything can be ruled in and nothing, very little can be ruled out. That said, um, I, I, there is a part of me that wishes Redfield had been able to say this a little sooner that this we spent like a good chunk of the past year. And oh, by the way, isn't it just kind of fascinating that we're now well past one year of this pandemic and the CDC and the World Health Organization and most health experts are really no closer to understanding the origin of this virus than we were March of 2020. It's one of those things where because the Chinese government has been so adamant and so uh, foot dragging and so reluctant to share data. And so, you know, uh, telling the WHO team where they can go and where they can't go and not letting them to see certain parts of the laboratory and things like that, that this just remains a theory, a theory that I find pretty darn plausible. And one that I kind of feel like the Chinese government is kind of like the argument of like, who, who has the burden of proof here? Well, look, I guess I'd be, I'd be more of a skeptic of this theory if I felt like the counter arguments were better. Now, one of the early ones was the idea that it had to pass through a pangolin or some other mammal before it uh, came to humans. Because those types of animals were not being studied in the Wuhan uh, uh, Institute of Virology or the Wuhan Centers for Disease Control, that the virus was much more unlikely to have been you know, passed through a laboratory if it had to go through one of these other mammals. But we haven't proven that. And this or this particular virus, we have not seen this precise one in nature. This doesn't mean it was cooked up in the lab. It just means that whatever sample there is, 
Um, we haven't found a bat out there that has it. And the closest relative we can find is many, many miles. I'm talking like a thousand miles it's on the other side of China, basically. Now, the closest case we did find in nature was about, you know, back in the early 2000s and involved three guys who'd gone into a mine to clean up bat guano to use it as fertilizer. Six of these guys got sick. I think three of them died. And that sample, by the way, of that virus got sent to the Wuhan Institute of Virology for further study. So we know the Wuhan Institute of Virology was researching coronaviruses and bats. And oh, by the way, so was the Wuhan Centers for Disease Control. So if you have this outbreak of a disease that is most closely related to bats and you have two institutions in the city, both near the known epicenter uh, that were studying coronaviruses and bats, to me, that's an Occam's razor sort of thing. And I, that seems like the kind of viewpoint that Redfield is having here. Um, the, the arguments, some of the arguments have been harnessed against this don't make any sense, particularly in the vein of, oh, the Chinese are too careful um, and that the Chinese wouldn't do something like this. For, of course, the Chinese would lie about this. The Chinese tried to cover up uh, Tiananmen Square. The Chinese are, are, you know, government is extraordinarily dishonest and extremely reluctant to ever admit any bad news. Um, remember, they spent three weeks and possibly up to six weeks insisting this could not be spread from one person to another. So you can't say, oh, the Chinese would never lie about this. Then you can't say, oh, their scientists are too careful. They wouldn't have an accident like this. As I frequently point out, the original SARS escaped from the Beijing Centers for Disease Control twice. Right? Lab accidents happen. Thankfully, they're rare. Usually, they're not very high consequence. But it's quite possible that it could happen in a situation like this. Um, I think that from the very beginning, there has been this kind of unspoken recognition that if this was the result of a lab accident, the consequences are really, really bad because everybody in the world who's had somebody die because of coronavirus will then get really, really mad at the Chinese government. And the Chinese government is not exactly conflict averse and it's not exactly fond of being criticized. And it seems like a formula for really serious tensions between the Chinese government and the rest of the world. Uh, and so I understand why people are kind of reluctant and they, rec they fear the consequences of this particular outcome. But that doesn't mean it's okay to lie. It doesn't mean it's okay to insist, oh, this couldn't possibly have happened when in fact it very much could have. So um, kind of thank you, uh, Dr. Redfield, but a recognition I wouldn't have minded this a little bit sooner. And I also feel like his comments are kind of getting a little misconstrued as a full-throated endorsement rather than merely being open to the possibility and or kind of, I guess, maybe leaning in that direction. Well, as we know from the White House, Dr. Walensky whiplash on schools and science on COVID, Jim, uh, you're allowed to have personal opinions at the CDC, even though Dr. Walensky's wasn't a personal opinion. It was the actual evidence. So uh, Dr. Redfield could have done that. But you're right. Uh, whenever somebody says something and doesn't have massive paperwork or it's just an opinion on what they think actually happened, the media now is uh, without evidence. And he just said, yeah, we're going to need to investigate this more. The science will eventually figure it out. But right now, I think this is this is likely what it is. But uh, since we can't possibly say anything negative about China for some reason, and that's just uh, hysterical xenophobia, uh, we've got to slap the without evidence on there. Just because, uh, you know, Trump or somebody else uh, said some things that didn't end up being true doesn't mean you have to apply that to any position that doesn't fit the narrative. Yeah, look, the other thing is that a large portion of our largest media institutions are part of large international conglomerates who have a lot of business in China and who have an interest in not antagonizing the government of China. That in and of itself is not a crime. We can argue about whether it's, you know, puts you in an inherently unethical or uh, morally compromised position. But I can't help but notice the lot of stories about how terrific China is doing come from like ABC News which, oh, by the way, is owned by the Disney Corporation, which very much likes opening its, its Disneylands and it's very, you know, selling the Disney movies and all that stuff and getting it in China. And that kind of, you 
large portions of our business community have a big incentive to downplay any real points of contention with China when we get into the Uyghurs and all that kind of stuff. So like this, this, this discussion doesn't have, is not happening in a vacuum. Um, and it's kind of, you know, a frustrating sense that we're, we're swimming upstream in this because a lot of people really don't want to believe that something like this possibly could have happened. All right. Well, let's talk about something uh, very, very good. And that is getting excellent meat delivered right to your door. We've got a brand new sponsor today, Moink Box, which I assume is a combination of moo and oink, which tells you what arrived deliciously in this box at my house just yesterday. There's steaks, there's tenderloins, there's lamb. Any good Greek boy will love that. Uh, There's ground beef. And Jim, there's bacon. I said to my wife uh, last night, you know, I'd love to be able to talk about having one of these things uh, on on the show tomorrow since we're going to talk about this sponsor. So she made some bacon this morning. Oh, man. So good. So good. I mean, just walking down the stairs and and smelling bacon, you know, the day is going to get off to the perfect start. So if you could taste this bacon from moinkbox.com, you would order it right now. But for now, I can see it. I can taste it. And I'm telling you, you got to get moinkbox.com. You know, Greg, I'm pretty sure that this has to be the sponsor that is easiest to remember that we've ever had on this podcast. (laughs) Moink, right? Just hearing me say that, that name, that label is just going to stick in your head for the rest of the day. Moink. Because Moink delivers grass-fed and grass-finished beef and lamb, pastured pork and chicken, and wild-caught Alaskan salmon direct to your door, helping family farms become financially independent outside of big agriculture. Their animals are raised outdoors, their fish swim wild in the ocean, and Moink meat is free of antibiotics, hormones, sugar, and all the other junk that you find pre-packaged in the meat aisle. Sign up at moinkbox.com martini to get a year of ground beef for free, and then pick what meats you want delivered with your first box. Change what you get each month and cancel anytime. This meat is fantastic. Can't wait to grill and, and cook the rest of it. Uh, and, and just the process by which they do this, very, very excited about it. They were on Shark Tank. Kevin O'Leary said it's the best bacon he's ever had. Uh, it's fantastic. And uh, they it help saves the family farm. What's not to love? So join the Moink movement today. Go to moinkbox.com slash martini right now. And listeners to this show get free ground beef for a year. Think about that. That's one year of the best ground beef you'll ever taste, but it's only for a limited time. Spelled M-O-I-N-K box.com slash martini. That's moinkbox.com slash martini. All right, let's uh, move on to our second martini now. Jim, this could be good or bad. I said we had good, bad, and crazy. The underlying story here is bad. The response here is good. Earlier this week, uh, the crisis on the southern border got to the point where Joe Biden at least had to make a perfunctory move of putting Kamala Harris in charge of the response to it. Uh, Did so at a White House event. Uh, Not a lot of enthusiasm involved there, but uh, Kamala Harris says she's going to get to the bottom of it. But uh, at least one border state governor uh, thinks this is a disaster. Doug Ducey is the Republican governor of Arizona, not mincing words about what he thinks of Kamala Harris being the point person of this administration on the border issue. Well, I, I have been informed that Vice President Kamala Harris has been put in charge of border security. She's about the, the worst possible choice that one could make. Uh, in no point in her career has she given any indication that she considers the, the border a, a problem or a serious threat. If President Biden's intent was to show that he's taking this issue seriously, he's really done the exact opposite here. He's completely trivialized this issue by putting someone in charge who flat out just doesn't care. 
Let me say that again, Jim. He said he's completely trivialized this issue by putting someone in charge that flat out just doesn't care. Uh, I believe Kamala Harris during the campaign, I think when she was running for president, uh, didn't she refer to ICE as Nazis or something along those lines back when uh, that was the the cool AOC type thing to do in reference to ICE? So uh, what do you make of Biden's move and what do you think of Ducey's response here? Yeah, so here's like this ideally... A, even, uh, let's assume you are um, broadly opposed to the Trump administration's approach to the border and immigration issues. Let's assume you believe there should be a path to citizenship for, for illegal immigrants. And let's believe you want to um, treat everyone who approaches the border humanely, but you don't want to have open borders, which is what the Biden administration insists is their opinion, their viewpoint. They insist that they don't want open borders. They insist they don't want everybody to come here. Um, the Biden administration really wants to believe that this is a, just a thing that happened, that there's no relation to his rhetoric on the campaign trail. It has no relation to his immediate suspension of all the activities the Trump administration was doing that, it, you know, that he just said perfectly reasonable things and he did not give a explicit or implicit green light to all kinds of migrants all over Central America and trying to come to the United States. Yesterday, quite literally, Joe Biden went before the American public during his press conference. And he said, nothing has changed. Truth of the matter is nothing has changed. And he insisted this is a this happens every single solitary year. A significant increase in the number of people coming to the border in January, February, and March. Well, here's the problem. The number of unaccompanied migrants, see, here's like this isn't like people come necessarily, we're not necessarily talking about people coming from jobs, although that's up too. Um, but with the thing that really has people upset are the unaccompanied migrant children. Like some of these are really, really young kids. Well, as of early Wednesday they had 16,500 unaccompanied migrant children in custody, which is way more than these shelters and emergency housing sites are designed to handle. And they said that so far for the month, and we're almost at the end of March, not quite there, they're on track to have about 16,000 of these kids, right? The previous record high came in May, 2019, which is 11,000. Today's morning, Joel, I go through that. That's 45% higher than the previous all-time high. Right now, the message from Jen Psaki and a whole bunch of people is this is not a crisis. Well, let's say whatever you are, let's say whatever your perspective of immigration, I think you'd like to. We'd all like to agree. Unaccompanied migrant children should not be coming to the border. We don't want kids wandering by themselves coming up to the border. We know in a lot of these cases they're actually being brought up by by human smugglers and other hideous, you know, moral reprobate people who are exploiting desperate people. We all want to take care of these kids. But I think we all would agree, these kids shouldn't be coming up to the border by themselves. So if you have something you don't want to happen, and it's 45% worse than the worst it's ever been, well, then yes, that is a crisis. And the Kamala Harris, there's no reason to think she's going to approach this any differently. And her past rhetoric on this suggests that she would be even more uh, shameless in trying to gaslight people into saying, this is not a crisis. We've got this under control. This really isn't a problem. Trust us. We're doing fine. We've got it under control. We're not, you know, this, th- there's no reason to think she is the one who's going to be able to speak clearly about this. Mallorcas kept, you know, spent a long time insisting this is not uh, a crisis. Like they're in this denial and it's kind of this hand waving of, ah, oh, don't worry. This isn't that bad. This isn't that bad. And obviously this is bad. Like again, I don't see how you can say a 45% jump higher than the worst it's ever been and insist it's not a crisis. It is a crisis, which means you got to treat it like a crisis, which means first step is to slow down the the wave that's coming towards you before the the situation gets any worse. The administration has said, we don't want these kids to come here, but they have not said like full-throated, 
Uh, and they've not indicated, you know, you're, you're we're not going to be able to take care of your kids. Your kids will suffer if they try to come here. We're not letting kids unaccompany. It is, it's a, they're afraid of seeming harsh. They're afraid of seeming mean or cruel. And the problem is you cannot enforce immigration law if you're not willing to say no to people. And that's at the heart of the contradiction of the Biden administration policy. There's no reason to think that Kamala Harris is going to be the one who's going to figure out how to uh, square that circle. Yeah, she was just asked earlier this week before this announcement if she was going to the border soon. And she giggled, of course, and said, not today. So, uh, yeah, it's clearly not a priority for her. I'm not sure how big of a priority it is for this administration. And like you said, Mayorkas has said, don't come. But uh, if kids come, we're gonna, they're not going to send them back. So, I mean, <laughs> talk about, talk about uh, giving them the wink and the nod to keep coming. All right, Jim, let's talk about my pillow. Slept fantastic on my pillow last night, but you know what? They give that same attention to quality to their towels and sheets. Right now, Three Martini Lunch listeners can buy one and get one free on all six piece towel sets and the Giza Dream Sheet sets. My pillow towels have proprietary technology that makes them highly absorbent. They're soft to the touch without that lotiony feel. They have a 10 year warranty and a 60 day money back guarantee. These towels are washable, they're dryable, and they have seven colors to choose from. The MyPillow Giza Dreams bedsheets are made with the world's best cotton, making them ultra soft and breathable. The sateen weave gives them a great luxurious finish. Also comes with a 10-year warranty and 60-day money-back guarantee, washable and dryable, and a wide variety of colors and sizes to fit any personal style or bed. Visit MyPillow.com to learn more and to order. Right now, three Martini Lunch listeners, again, get all six-piece towel sets and the Giza sheets. Buy one, get one free. Just use the promo code MARTINI at checkout or when you call 800 874 That's MyPillow.com, code Martini, or call 800-874-0104. For buy one, get one free on all six-piece towel sets and the Giza Dream Sheets. All right, Jim, on to the crazy Martini now. And yesterday was Joe Biden's long-awaited first press conference, if you can call it that. I was uh, working on some other things, so I didn't see it live, but I did check in on Twitter. And shockingly, the people that love Joe Biden thought he did great and exceeded expectations. And the people that don't like Joe Biden thought he was uh, fumbling and bumbling and uh, looking every bit like the uh, the person we expected at this point. But uh, one of the issues that came up yesterday was, of course, the filibuster. Caitlin Collins of CNN baiting the hook for Biden about whether this was a Jim Crow relic and what he's going to do about it. Regarding the filibuster, at John Lewis's funeral, President Barack Obama said he believed the filibuster was a relic of the Jim Crow era. Do you agree? Yes. If not, why not abolish it if it's a relic of the Jim Crow era? Successful electoral politics is the art of the possible. Let's figure out how we can get this done and move in the direction of significantly changing the abuse of even the filibuster rule first. It's been abused from the time it came into being by an extreme way in the last 20 years. Let's deal with the abuse first. And so, Jim, as you've pointed out in the morning jolt, uh, Joe Biden had a very different opinion on the filibuster when he was in the minority uh, and in the Senate a while ago. Other people have posted video of Barack Obama vociferously as a senator uh, defending the filibuster and the need for minority rights. And so the idea that all of a sudden, when Republicans haven't even filibustered anything yet, that this is racist and it's all come to our attention and our conclusion right now that it's got to go right now. We just figured this out. Doesn't pass the smell test. And Biden's effort to do the 180 here didn't go very well, at least in my opinion. 
No, and look, I, the, the easiest thing to do here is to point to a statement from a wise senator back in 2006, back when it was coming up, this usual argument of should we, Republicans control the Senate? And there was our talk about, you know, oh, the Democrats are filibustering too much and this is going to prevent us from enacting the agenda we were elected to do. And this senator said, I've been in the Senate for a long time and there's plenty of times I would have loved to change this rule or that rule to pass a bill or to confirm a nominee I felt strongly about. But I didn't. And it was understood the option of doing so just wasn't on the table. You fought political battles. You fought hard, but you fought them within the strictures and the requirements of the Senate rules. Despite the short-term pain, that understanding has served both parties well and provided long-term gain. Adopting the nuclear option would change this fundamental understanding and unbroken practice of what the Senate is all about. And of course, you probably guessed already that Senator was Joe Biden, right? Now, once we've seen plenty of cases in which the number of people, we know, how your viewpoint on the filibuster depends on whether you're in the majority or in the minority. I think what's ridiculous is that we see like the, the, the degree to which people are willing to use something and see it as completely morally justifiable and with no, you know, uh, taint, not tainted by Jim Crow at all when they use it. But when the other side uses it, instantly it becomes this tool of oppression and, you know, anti-democratic, you know, small d and, and all kinds of stuff. It, it, is, it is just kind of ridiculous to see Joe Biden make these emphatic arguments and then turn on a dime once it becomes his... his uh, uh, to his political advantage. And the upside, or I guess you could say the hope of Biden uh, as, as a president, I, I'd vote for the guy, but, you know, okay, the Democrats are kind of going crazy with their left wing, but Biden's never been that guy. He's always been at the center of his party. He's old school. He's old fashioned. He's not on board with any of this crazy woke stuff. He'll be the bulwark. He won't let the left wing run roughshod. Well, so far, we're, we're coming towards the end of March. It's not a good start. It is a, you know, the spending bills. There's an interesting talk that the $3 trillion infrastructure spending bill that they want is going to be too small and that the, 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 the squad and the progressive left wing want a $10 trillion bill over 10 years. There's really very little indication that Biden really wants to fight with the left wing of his party, which means he's always trying to look for ways to placate them, which now means... The filibuster that he had once, you know, passionately and eloquently defended is now seen as something that's bad and something that may need to, that now needs to be reformed, which is a nice way of saying they need to get rid of it for when it's inconvenient to the Democrats' priorities. Jim, there's so many ways that can respond to this. So one, just in passing, is if they spend $10 trillion, jack up the debt, possibly kick up inflation and interest rates, that's going to be a complete mess given the amount of debt that we're going to have and the interest we'll have to pay on it uh, every year. But uh, what do you, I mean, this is nothing new on the left, and it's especially ramped up lately, but this idea that anytime you don't agree with the left narrative, you're a racist. I mean, Al Sharpton's vowing to go to Arizona and West Virginia to declare senators racist if they don't vow and vote to kill the filibuster or at least water it down to the point where it doesn't matter anymore. Uh, We have folks out there saying Georgia's new voter integrity law. It means you're a racist if you support that. So, I mean, at what point does everything become racist? So therefore nothing is racist anymore. Actually, Greg, I'm going to play devil's advocate here because it was actually fairly recently that an African-American member of the Senate, deeply concerned over what we'd seen with George Floyd and the Black Lives Matter protest, had introduced a bill that would have enacted significant reforms to the police. And a whole bunch of white senators got together and filibustered it, Greg, They blocked it from even coming to the floor. So a really good bill that could have gotten bipartisan support was blocked by this obstinate minority. Now, of course, that was the Senate Democrats blocking Senator Tim Scott's police reform bill. But still, that, that, you know, as long as you just hand wave that stuff away, then yes, that is a racist use of the filibuster to enact a democratic priority. Jim, the good news 
uh, for you is that t- next week is vacation week. So happy spring break. Enjoy getting away for a little bit. And we'll talk to you, I guess, the day after Easter. You know, Greg, I'll miss you. I'll miss our listeners. I'll miss the fun we have. But uh, I don't think I'm going to miss the news. It's one of the best parts of going on vacation. Just you need the break mentally and otherwise. So I see bad news and I don't have to talk about it. It's really kind of a nice relief. Like, well, uh, Greg's going to have fun with that one. <laughs> we, Good luck, Rich McFadden or whoever's sitting in. You know? uh, yes, uh, Rob Long, Chad Benson will be in for uh, Jim next week. So yeah, it's going to be fun and uh, safe travels. Have a great time. Uh, look forward to having you back with a tan. See you in a week, Greg. Jim Garrity, National Review. I'm Greg Corumbus, Radio America. Thanks for being with us. Don't forget to subscribe to the Three Martini Lunch podcast. Very grateful for those five-star ratings and your kind reviews. Get us on those home devices. All you have to say is play Three Martini Lunch podcast. Follow us on Twitter. He's at Jim Garrity. I'm at Dateline underscore DC. Have a great weekend. And please, there will be a Three Martini Lunch on Monday. So join us then. We are living in difficult times where people fear having thought-provoking conversations about pressing issues. And although we're in the midst of an information explosion, there are a lot of forces aiming to distort what's true. I created The Bill Walton Show to provide a forum for in-depth, thought-provoking conversations with leaders, artists, entrepreneurs, and thinkers. Please join me at thebillwaltonshow.com to explore what's true, what's right, and what's next.